This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now... New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. You're listening to the CBS Sunday Morning Podcast on Play.it, brought to you by the new film Trumbo. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's the food issue, our annual invitation to eat, drink, and be merry. Now, when it comes to feasting, more and more Americans these days are enjoying food that's homegrown, or, at the very least, food that comes from the farm right next door. Mark Strassman will be reporting our coverage story. Outside Atlanta, there's a neighborhood fit for a foodie, where the distance from farm to table is just 50 feet. How important is the farm to this community? Oh, I think it's vital. It's the centerpiece of the community. A lot of people are saying that farms are the, are the new golf course. It's a beautiful day in the agrihood, ahead on Sunday morning. Also on the menu, tasty treats from three American cities offered a la carte by Susan Spencer. And then it's on to Jane Pauley and a look at one top chef's recipe for success. So you call it the rooster? Yes. Where does internationally renowned chef Marcus Samuelson, born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden, draw his inspiration? I feel like you've become a Harlem American. Yeah, I'm a Harlemite, right? I own, I'm a Harlemite. Oh, yeah. Nice. I love that. Um, you got grease all over your face. You look great. Mm. No, don't take it away. This is a sign of love. On assignment with Marcus Samuelson Come here, later Come here, Come on here. Sunday morning. <laughs> is it good enough to eat? Well, that's no idle question when it comes to the dishes Seth Doan has been eyeing in Japan. There are souvenirs for sale and cooking classes for tourists. But the ingredients might surprise you. This soft serve is actually silicone caulking, and the hot fudge smells like plastic. 
It can take days to prepare, but you'd never want to eat it. Japan's fake food industry, ahead on Sunday morning. We'll be spending time in the kitchen this morning with actress Cloris Leachman. She's well-known for the many roles that she plays, less well-known for the diet she swears by. With Tracy Smith, we'll pay her a visit. I am Frau Blucher. For Oscar-winning actress Cloris Leachman, life is better as a vegetarian. Do you miss bacon? I don't miss meat at all. I couldn't eat meat now if you, if you gave me a million dollars. And she raised a family without it. Later on Sunday morning, the legendary Cloris Leachman still cooking. Oh, come on. <laughs> you are a legend. Still cooking. I'm still short. <laughs> Fair warning for his contribution to the food issue this morning. Our Mo Rocca is going bananas. Here's something you might not know. Americans eat as many bananas as apples and oranges combined. That's a fact. World's number one fruit by far, oldest cultivated fruit. In many parts of the world, bananas are an essential part of the diet. We'll learn a bunch of other stuff about bananas later on Sunday morning. You know, a bunch of bananas is really called a hand, and each banana is a finger. It's true. We'll have those stories and more. Based on the true story... Trumbo, you're the highest-paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated are under 17 not admitted without parent only in theaters this november everywhere thanksgiving homegrown food will be on many tables this thanksgiving including tables in the community mark strassman visited for our sunday morning cover story all you foodies take a closer look this tree-lined suburban street might lead to heaven on earth I would say that probably 80% of the food that we eat comes from within a five-mile radius of this house. These peppers. These peppers, yeah. This they come pepper. from? That comes from 50 feet away. Clay Johnson and Rosalind the Mew moved their family here from Washington, D.C. two years ago. Their five-bedroom, five-bathroom home sits 40 minutes south of downtown Atlanta. They bought here for the close-knit neighborhood and this organic farm right beyond their backyard. We had a friend from New York City come down here and ask us if it was decorative. Um, <laughs> and he would say, like, did, did they put those hay bales out there for, is that an art installation? <laughs> um, <laughs> Green Acres is the place to be. But this isn't Green Acres. Oliver and Lisa Douglas were city folk trying their hand at farming. Johnson and Lemieux are technology consultants living in a development called Serenby. More than 200 homes and growing. The big draw here is not swim tennis or golf, but a real working farm. To be clear, we're not roughing it. Like that farm is cared for by professional farmers. We buy the food. We are lucky to be so close to it, to be able to benefit, but we're not having to go out there and, you know, hoe the farm. People love the idea of sitting on their back porch and watching the farmers grow the food. Steve Nigren is Serenby's developer. But where did you get the idea of putting a farm, a working farm, in the center? Well, I grew up uh, on a farm. Uh, my family is generational farmers from uh, Colorado. Nigren had opened and owned more than 30 restaurants when he bought 60 acres of farmland in 1994. And gradually, that family farm became Serenby. He was nervous about urban sprawl and decided to develop a community his way. Today, Serenby has 1,000 acres. Its clusters of homes are surrounded by walking trails and horse stables. But at the center of it all, 25 acres set aside for agriculture. The first 20 lots that I priced were sold in 48 hours. 
and the next group were sold in about uh, six weeks. So I realized that there was actually the market demand for what we were talking about. As an approach, Serenby grew from the same farm-to-table movement that has changed restaurant menus and brought farmers markets to more and more neighborhoods. This community planted itself at the forefront of the latest development trend, the agri-hood. It's really about uh, using farms and agriculture as an amenity. Ed McMahon is a researcher at the Urban Land Institute in Washington, D.C. When I first started following this, you could count the number of developments like this on both hands. Uh, today, there are literally hundreds of them, and, they're, and I hear about a new one virtually every week. Putting a farm in the middle of development is relatively low cost, and it's something that seems to uh, resonate with lots of people. So I think we're going to see a lot more of these kind of projects going forward. Agrihoods are popping up like peppers coast to coast. The cannery near Sacramento has a seven-and-a-half-acre farm. Prairie Crossing outside Chicago is anchored by a hundred-acre farm. And just outside Washington, D.C., you'll find Willowsford, with its 300 acres set aside for fruits and vegetables, chickens and goats. But agrihoods are often luxury living. The average home at Serenby costs about $700,000, five times more than other homes in the area. Serenby recently broke ground on 200 new homes and when complete is expected to have 1,200 residents. People that are moving here, they, they want to be near the farm. They want to overlook it. 29-year-old Ashley Rogers is Serenby's farm manager. I know most of the folks in the community and they can come up to me one day and say, oh man, I made that sweet potato last night. And that warms my heart more than like anything. <laughs> Rogers grew up in suburban Detroit. She feels a special connection here. Her hands in the soil, her heart in the community. I love what I do. <laughs> I think about Charles that lives right there all the time. And just hearing him say, hey, Ashley, do you know, like knowing that he cares about what I'm doing and I can affect him and he can come after school and pick radishes with us, you know, and his parents can say, oh, thank you, like, you make such an impact on him. Like, where else can I do that? How important is the farm to this community? Oh, I think it's vital. It's the centerpiece of the community. You know, we'll spend two to three hours at the farmer's market on Saturday, not just buying vegetables. I mean, that takes 15 minutes, but checking in with neighbors, seeing how everybody's doing. If you replace that farm with a golf course, right? Like, we, we wouldn't live here. Can this model be duplicated, replicated in other places? Gosh, I would hope so. I really would hope so. Because this, the subdivisions, you know, that I grew up in, I hope that that's an end of an era and we can have this community, not a subdivision. Hit. Art on caffeine. It's one thing to ask a coffee house barista what's brewing, but does it make sense to ask that question to an artist? According to Anna Werner, it does. <laughs> Something is always brewing in Gerard Tonti's studio. Well, I thought it might be fun to kind of push the limits a little bit. Literally, he paints with coffee and tea. You are aware they do sell paints like in a tube. Just not as fun. <laughs> this graphic designer used to paint the old-fashioned way until the day he became fascinated by his cup of green tea. And I think, I thought, well, I wonder if I can make this into a, a painting medium, you know, what that would be like. Browns and greens were easy enough, but keeping other colors stable, not so much. What's the hardest color to make stick? Hardest color to make stick is probably the reds. Are you still working on mastering the reds? I recently have just, just got it. You yeah, just, so I just got, got, it? got it? So After I, how many years? Uh, well, the whole process has been about 10 years. So now I have a full color spectrum. So I can get things like flesh tones, I can get purples, silvers, 
grays, blacks, whites, the whole works. Getting all those colors requires Tanti to buy coffee and tea from around the world, shipped to his home outside Pittsburgh that he shares with his wife and two children. This is the tea that you only get from yeah. Thailand, so, right? Yes, it's dried blue flowers. Mm -hmm. It's blue, all right. Okay, here we go. Tastes good. It's a really delicate flavor. So this essentially is your blue. There is no other tea that gives you this color that you need? Uh, no. The actual painting requires a bit of a juggling act in Tanti's basement studio, which doubles as a sort of chemistry lab. So what I'll do mm -hmm. is I'll set the easels up, work on a piece. You know, you can see I have several going at the same time, mm -hmm. but I'm actually brewing and making paint as I'm working. It's like you're cooking and painting right, at right. the same time. Mm -hmm. Look closely. That textured surface? It's actually coffee grounds. And it's a good guess that with all that caffeine around, Tanti's art will keep percolating. Anybody ever say, why do you do that? <laughs> sure, all the time. <laughs> How do you uh, answer that? Um, it's, for me, it's all about the challenge. You know, it's been about the process and the challenge. So if somebody can, you know, look at a piece and it makes them feel warm, like, you know, a warm cup of coffee in a coffee shop, I think the job's done. Grab a tray. We're headed for the cafeteria. Next. Based on the true story. Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. A Los Angeles cafeteria from days gone by is thriving anew. Our Lee Cowan has grabbed a tray. Even the trays are like legit old school. Yeah, we did a lot of research and we found what the original ones looked like and we had them reproduced. The trays at Clifton's Cafeteria in downtown Los Angeles are only a tiny detail in a restaurant that feels like you've walked into Throwback Thursday. Thank you. Welcome. Have a good day. And ordered a side of nostalgia. We have the original Jello that people have loved for generations. Developer Andrew Myron has had a crush on this quirky old place for as long as he can remember. First time I saw it, I was absolutely astonished. I think it was one of those places where you're transported the moment you walk through the door. Clifton's is nothing short of an institution. It opened on this very spot in 1935 billed back then as the world's largest cafeteria. In the thick of the Depression, it became famous as the Cafeteria of the Golden Rule. Its morally-minded proprietor, Clifford Clinton, had a policy to never turn anyone away, whether they could pay for their hot meal or not. The idea was not to make money. The idea was that it, it gave back to the community. Clinton also wanted to feed the soul. So he turned his dining room into a woodland escape from L.A.'s downtown troubles. He built columns of redwood trees sprawling over the tables. There were rocks and shrubs bursting from the walls, even a tiny chapel. How many people at the height was he serving? He was serving 15,000 a day. 15,000? 15, 15,000 a day. And 170 million for this location from the time it opened until now. It drew more than the hungry. It drew the artsy, too. From the likes of Walt Disney to Jack Kerouac, even science fiction writer Ray Bradbury became a regular. But as L.A.'s downtown began to decay, so did Clifford Clinton's dream. His children tried to keep meals affordable for those on nearby Skid Row, but by 2010, they were considering closing Clifton's doors for the first time in 75 years. That's when Andrew Myron stepped in. Did anybody tell you that you were crazy for trying to do this? I think it's a better question. Did anybody tell me I wasn't crazy <laughs> for doing this? More than $10 billion later, he's now as much in the cafeteria business as he is into forestry. Or so it seems. 
how did you conceive of this? <laughs> Strangely, it's one of the first things that I thought of when I actually walked in. Giant tree in the middle of a giant restaurant. Giant tree in the middle of the restaurant. Yes, a 40-foot redwood tree. It's a fake one, but a good one, soaring three stories through an atrium. There are also herds of taxidermied animals eyeing diners as they eat. There are cocktail bars tucked away on almost every floor, which Myron has carefully curated with curiosities, some literally out of this world. It's an actual meteorite, 4.7 billion years old. But for all the changes, he left Clifton's woodland dining room much as it was. I was five years old about. 84-year-old Latrice holzman remembers it from her first visit in 1936. My mother wore a hat. I mean, in those egg gloves. Oh no, gloves and a hat were very, very important. Since it reopened early last month, Clifton's massive kitchen has cooked up enough cakes and carrot salad to feed more than 125,000 customers. And, in keeping with its tradition of social responsibility, many of those doing the cooking were themselves in need of a hearty helping of Clifton-style compassion. Barbara Jacobs is in charge of outreach. We've decided to go out, reach out to uh, sober living communities, uh, at-risk youth and other groups, and offer people jobs. Those hires amount to about 10% of Clifton's workforce. So while it may not be handing out free meals anymore, certainly hasn't stopped trying to help. There's something very humbling about being uh, the person who takes that legacy and brings that to new generations and a new audience. Clifton's signature has always been the most comforting of comfort foods, turkey and stuffing. It's served here every day. A reminder that at the cafeteria of the Golden Rule, Thanksgiving is a daily occurrence in more ways than one. Just so you can check that out. That's, Whoa. That's Cajun? Yes, ma'am. Just ahead, peanuts on the menu. A trio of treats is on the menu this Sunday, each an ambassador for its hometown. We'll be presenting them a la carte as the morning goes on. Susan Spencer of 48 Hours starts us off with Southern comfort in a shell. We love the peanut dew. We think you're gonna love them too. Meet Chris Bible. Hey, rock and roll, y'all. AKA the peanut dude. All natural fruits, veggies, nuts. Nice. Shine on. Definitely a little nutty. So we've got traditional boiled peanuts and Cajun boiled peanuts. Boiled what? If you're asking why would anyone boil a peanut, you're probably not from the deep south. Thank you, darling. All right. Boiled peanuts for me really take me back to my childhood here in Charleston. That's Charleston, South Carolina, home of the so-called caviar of the south. Bible boils his nuts in his backyard. He's been peddling them at his parking lot nut stand for almost nine years. What sort of a staff do you have here? Me and my dog. What does your dog do? <laughs> Loves me through it all. You want a treat, pumpkin? And has right from the start, when Bible was making peanuts, selling peanuts. These are just about done. These days, he says he can boil up a few hundred pounds on a good weekend. So you can check that out. That's, Whoa. That's Cajun? Yes, ma'am. Steve Jobs once said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward, only looking back. So you see yourself as the Steve Jobs of the boiled peanut? I see myself as the Steve Jobs, Ted Turner, Henry Ford, Gandhi. Really? And shall we say, John F. Kennedy of boiled peanuts. You just push on it. Then Doesn't it right take up. much to bring him out of his shell, unless you try to get him to divulge his secret formula. Would you have ever asked the founder of Coca-Cola? what his recipe was. There is no official way to make boiled peanuts. Everyone puts the salt in at a different time. Um, the heat high at a different time. The possibilities are endless. I believe so, let's begin. <laughs> it just comes right open. Yes, ma'am. Perfect, okay. This could grow on you. Yum, yum. Take the word peanut, 
throw it away and have an expectation more of like a potato-like texture. Other people look at this and say, yeah, you know, well, I don't they, think so. they aren't from the South. So maybe it does take a true Southerner to appreciate the lowly peanuts' finer points. Did you like them from the very beginning? Yes. What do they taste like? Boiled peanuts. <laughs> it's a silly question, wasn't it? <laughs> no. Jane? Still to come. I'm just going to cut this up. And then you and I, we're going to eat this bird. Celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson. Boom. Oh. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Eat, drink, and be merry. A special edition of Sunday Morning. Here again is Charles Osgood. A recipe for success what one top chef has perfected, a recipe that features a life story spanning three continents. He tells his tale to our Jane Pauley. So meeting expectations? No, 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 no. Exceed. None of this was built on meeting anything. Exceed. Though he's authored the cookbooks, done the TV shows. Marcus, you're the winner. Of and his flagship restaurant, Red Rooster Harlem, is truly destination dining. Your menu is... Marcus Samuelson is anything but a conventional chef. What name were you born with? Marcus Samuelson is the name I have now, but my first name was Kasahun Segai. Just like any other Swede, I was born in Ethiopia. <laughs> I'd love to hear you speak some Swedish. Jane, how are you? Have you been to Sweden? You've never been to Sweden? No. Well, Is that what you said? Yeah, <laughs> Were it not for an epidemic, Marcus might never have been to Sweden. My sister and I, my mother in Ethiopia, we had tuberculosis. This is in the early 70s. And my mom walked from our village, Abragodena, into Addis took us days. She also took us to a hospital. And once she got to the hospital, she passed away. He and his sister were adopted by a Swedish couple. When do you start remembering things? My first memories is with my mom, my sisters, and, and dad in Sweden. Us just being the Samuelsons and doing what Swedish kids does, right? <laughs> Ice skating, eating herring, just being fun, loving, stupid kids. His grandmother, Helga, taught him to love cooking. We had to roll meatballs, we had to pickle herring, we had to preserve lingonberries. There was always a season in Helga's kitchen. And I love that. She's a natural cook, and I had to work for everything. Samuelson entered culinary school at age 16 and soon began working at restaurants across Europe. I got a job in a three-star Michelin restaurant in France. And chef told me, at that time, you have to leave Europe, because only America would accept a black chef. And with that advice, I moved to America. As an apprentice at the exclusive New York restaurant, Aquavit. When the executive chef died suddenly, Marcus was offered the job. He was 23. You excel and you noticed. But I also think it's also the blessings of being a black man, of knowing that I would not get a lot of shots, I'm not going to get a lot of chances, so you take the chance that is in front of you. And he became the youngest chef ever to earn a New York Times three-star review. But 9-11 caused him to rethink everything. It shook me in a way that you started to ask those other questions in life. What am I doing this for? What is all this worth? Should I just cook for very exclusive people in Midtown all my life? What if I open a restaurant that is a little bit more inclusive and affordable? For me, it's really about flexing the muscles of being a big-time chef, so saying, hey, you know what? Let's change the footprint of dining. Let's look at urban America. Let's look at Harlem as a dining opportunity versus an opportunity that we disconnect from the city. So you call it the rooster? Yes. The answer was Red Rooster Red Harlem, yeah. with a menu that reflects both the flavors of an iconic neighborhood and Samuelson's diverse influences. I love the culture that is in Harlem, which is vibrant. It has a lot of character, a lot of personality. Flavor. It has a lot of flavor, exactly. You'll find Swedish meatballs, Ethiopian spices, and fried chicken. I didn't grow up with fried chicken, so I had to learn it. So I came up with this idea, I'm gonna fry it whole, the whole bird. Certain foods needs a lot of explanation, fried chicken shouldn't. 
Right? You just should have. This was a proposition. Oh, my goodness. I thought I should test myself. Well, I'm, I'm happy. My feet kind of move. You do yeah. the happy dance. Yeah. But that's what food can do, right? Enjoy you tonight. are amazing. Thank you. When Marcus Samuelson greets his guests, you could be forgiven for thinking it's a kind of gracious victory lap. I brought my friends. They were like, three orders of chicken wings, please. He has truly come so far. Your very unique narrative cannot be underestimated, and your food speaks for itself. But your narrative does carry the message far, far beyond. What a weird blessing that was. Life throws you so many uh, different curveballs that all you wish and hope for is that you're prepared for it. That's fine. That's good, right? That's fine. I feel like I'm living the dream that I wanted to establish for myself. Once you do that, you should be lucky and grateful, and I am those two things every day. Next, plastic, fantastic. Think this spread looks good enough to eat? Well... Unless you have a taste for plastic, think again. Here's Seth Doan. Call it a little Japanese kitchen magic. Green goop is transformed into a head of lettuce. A tempting tray of sushi won't lose its appeal for years. And this mackerel has never seen a grill. Where do you see fake food in Japan? See it in department stores, in shopping malls in underground shopping areas, in touristy places such as this. You see it everywhere. Ohio native Justin Hannes showed us around his adopted home city of Osaka. Known as Japan's food capital, fake or sample food abounds here too. Fake food overcomes a language barrier? Exactly. You point to it and say, this is what I want. Exactly. And that's how it's been in this country for 70, 80 years. Across Japan, realistic-looking food displays are used by restaurants to demonstrate portion size and are laid out to try to lure customers. It's really an advertising tool. Oh, exactly. Hannes sells plastic food via his website and claims if you can cook it, they can make a replica that looks good enough to eat. That's thanks to his manufacturer, 60-year-old artisan Fumio Marino. Why has this fake food taken root here in Japan? Western-style dishes were introduced to Japan and customers were unfamiliar with them, so they didn't sell well, he explained. Today, I think it's as useful as ever. At his Osaka workshop, we found a sumptuous spread of treats, all completely inedible, of course. It is remarkable craftsmanship, though, which Marino first learned from his dad. Wow. My father always said, before you eat something, observe it, he remembered. Study its color, patterns, and then you can dig in. Making it look just right takes a lot of trial and error. It turns out panko coating for shrimp looks best if it's made from polyvinyl chloride or soba soup broth from urethane. Kiwi seeds can be created by permanent marker, and getting beef to the perfect temperature is more airbrush than oven. Marino told us it can take 10 years to master this. Oh, it just blows all off. That made me feel a bit better with my attempt at shrimp tempura. My tempura looks a little sad. Each piece is handcrafted, a sort of artisanal plastic. It seems machines just can't make it look so real. How expensive is plastic food? It can get pretty pricey, anywhere from $70 on up. But the benefit there is if you leave it outside, it should last for at least seven years in all weather conditions. Seven years, it's not going to budge. Hannah says souvenirs, from keychains to magnets, make up most of his business. But buying fake food is not just for the casual collector. Sushi, Sushi rice. Tiramisu. Tiramisu, yeah. Meet Akiko Obata. She showed us the room her husband won't enter. I sit here relaxing, she told us. I add new items and just look at my collection. It's really quite something. She's decorated the walls with pizza, and drawers are filled with creme brulee. Seated on a burger and a piece of cake, we chatted about her hobby. Why did you start collecting food, plastic food of all things? 
I always thought plastic food samples were only available for people in the food industry, she told us. But when I found out they were available for a housewife like me, I started buying them. She has no idea how much she spent, though doesn't dispute estimates of more than $80,000. Do people think you're crazy? I'm not aware of that, she chuckled. Well, it landed her a place in the Guinness Book of World Records for having more than 8,000 pieces of plastic prepared food items. Who knew there was such a category? While Obata may have taken it to another level, we found this fake food is undoubtedly appealing. And there's something almost enchanting about these handmade, delicious looking morsels. Based on the true story, Trumbo, you're the highest paid writer in Hollywood. In 1947, he was blacklisted for his beliefs. Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traders. So he rewrote the rules. We do the one thing everyone says we can't. We write. Trumbo is one of the year's must-see pictures. Brian Cranston Towers. Are you prepared to go to prison? Helen Mirren is terrific. Whisper a movie you've written in secret. Maybe I've even heard of it. Maybe you have. Trumbo, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Only in theaters this November. Everywhere. Thanksgiving. Just two words may explain why Tampa's venerable Columbia restaurant has lasted more than a century. Cuban sandwich. So we've okay. got our ham on there. All right. Next important thing would be our pork. Salami. Four slices. Not three, not five, but four. It's a sandwich built according to exact specifications. Two pickles. Two. Only two. Only two. Made from an age-old family recipe. Cuban sandwich at the Columbia restaurant should be nine inches long. Period. Period. <laughs> End of story. Not a lot of room for creativity here. And what about, you know, mayonnaise, lettuce, oh. tomatoes? You will not do that. If you want to ruin it, go ahead. <laughs> It's served hot after being assembled in a very precise order. Does it matter? Yeah, it matters. It's the difference between being great and good. It's amazing to me that both of you were kids in this place. Richard Gonsmart and his daughter, Andrea Gonsmart Williams, are the fourth and fifth generations to own and run the Columbia. We're the oldest Hispanic restaurant in the United States. They give the sandwich a lot of the credit. They say they serve as many as 600 a day. But this is a heavy sandwich. But I think it's anything like a burger. You go and you know you want to eat it, and you yeah. indulge. This comes with a complimentary <laughs> triple bypass. <laughs> oh, it's a sandwich. <laughs> of course, that didn't stop me. You're eating it upside down. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> good. Do you consider this a regional food? It's a Tampa original. Just don't try telling that to the good folks in Miami. And I love when Miami says they have the real Cuban sandwich. So what's wrong with the one that they serve in Miami? Well, they don't put salami. That's the big argument. They don't put they salami. They don't put salami. With or without salami, the Cuban finds its place on roughly three times as many restaurant menus today as it did a decade ago. A regional delight that could be coming soon to a cafe near you. Good. Coming up, you can get up to two pounds of vegetables all right. in a 16-ounce glass of juice. Nancy Giles, with all the juicy details. Plenty of Americans are juiced these days, and you can count our Nancy Giles among them. So what is this called? It's called Get Your Green On. Get Your Green On. Do you remember the old Missy Elliott song, Get Your Freak <laughs> yes, On? Yes. At Juice Generation in New York City, Mr. Green Beans. they're freaking out over juice. What do you like? I like apples. Okay, let's start with apples. I like carrots. And kale, kale is a very hot vegetable these days. What's the kale story of kale? Kale is the new bacon. Kale is super hot. Eric, I just don't <laughs> think I can go along with kale as the I new know, bacon. I know, I know, I know. The founder of the chain of juice bars, Eric Helms, promises better health in a glass. Juicing can help bridge the gap between what we should eat mm -hmm. and what we actually eat. True. Yeah. Most of us, you know, we, we fall off the wagon, we get stressed, we have bad days, good days. Juicing is a great way to get a lot of nutrition 
in a quick, easy way. So juice bars are popping up all over. Juicing is new. Juicing is hip. There's never been anything like it. Well, yes, there has. I'm going to give you a demonstration of one of the most wonderful machines that was ever invented, the Vitamix machine. In 1949, in what might have been the very first infomercial, William Barnard, known as Papa, was juicing it up. Cut the apple in two to see if there isn't any worms in it. If you're a vegetarian, you don't want the worm. Then you cut in the apple core, seeds and all. I saw your great-grandfather's infomercial. Was that the machine that he used in that? It was. Jody Berg is the president of Vitamix. After four generations, it's still a family business. And the assembly line outside of Cleveland keeps humming along. Now, I don't want to say Vitamix is a cult, but over the decades, as this blender from the 1990s shows, they've answered to a higher calling. As you notice, it's called the Total Nutrition Center. No, Jody, it's called the Total Nutrition Center, is what well, it's the, called. The reason they made it so bold is they wanted people to realize, no, this isn't, this is not a blender. I see. There's so much more to this than a blender. My grandfather had a philosophy that we still hold true today, which is we are not here to sell machines. We're here for people to successfully change their life. In Papa Barnard's day, the Vitamix sold for $29.95. These days, they've gotten a little pricey, worthy of parody on Saturday Night Live. Seriously, how much is this? $6.50. Wow. Really? There are, of course, less expensive alternatives for home juicing. You've no doubt seen the ads. Okay, so you're putting in some water. So we got some water and some ice. Okay. But not surprisingly, Adam Wilson, the Vitamix head chef, thinks those other machines don't have the juice that his has. You're going to be a little bit more enticed to drink something that's very smooth and creamy rather than a chunky mess. <laughs> Sorry. Is that a technical term, a chunky mess? I might have just made that up. <laughs> so are you juiced about juicing? I juiced with Marjorie Nolan Cohn, a dietitian and nutritionist at New York's Liquiteria. I think I'll go for the hangover cure. Oh, what are you saying? Well, hard night last yeah, night. Yeah, just a little All bit. Right. She gave me the skinny on juicing. The thing that we need to watch out for, um, depending on what your goals and your purpose of juicing, is the calories. Mm. Because if you're having a juice that has more fruits in it than veggies, you're going to add up those calories a lot quicker. Whatever your pleasure, it turns out Papa knows best. I'm going to say, here's to your health. Delicious. Perfect health to every one of you. Smells so good. Mm -hmm. Next. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Someone's in the kitchen with Chloris. Chloris Leachman, that is. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. What are your special skills? <laughs> well, I have an uncanny knack of choosing the right wine for dinner. <laughs> That's Cloris Leachman, who kept us laughing on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. This morning, she's in the kitchen with our Tracy Smith. You know, people describe you as a legend. What do you think of that word? It's a good word. It's just how long you live. It's not just how long you live. You've won eight Emmy Awards. Nine. She may balk at being called a legend. Look what we have called but with Cloris Leachman, it's hard to think of a better word. Your rooms have been prepared. In nearly 70 years on stage and on screen, she's truly done it all. The fire, then we'll do Kissinger, then the bus strike and the armed robbery. How lucky you are, insulated from reality here in the fantasy world of television. Two of those nine Emmys were for her role as Mary Tyler Moore's annoyingly perfect landlord, Phyllis Lindstrom. For when I toss my head back in that way I have. <laughs> it was easy for her to make us laugh, and it seems just as easy to break our hearts. What am I doing apologizing to you? Why am I always apologizing to you, you little bastard? For this scene in 1971's The Last Picture Show, director Peter Bogdanovich allowed her just one take. 
I just did it once, and I, I had just learned my lines on the way over there. Just on the way it, over there? On the way over there. And I did it, and then he said cut, and it was over. And, and I said, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I need to do that again. He said, no. I could do the first part better. I could. Well, you, you think you could? I know I could. Still, it was good enough for an Oscar. Are you comfortable? Yes, yes, this is fine. Back then, she was also raising five children and would try to cook dinner for them nearly every night. Dinah England is her youngest. I remember when I was a kid, there would be five of us, and then everybody would come home at different times, and she would literally make five different gourmet vegetarian meals, just one after the other. Never stop. Who does that? Who does that and has a side job that wins yeah. you multiple awards going on? I mean, yeah. I mean, we'd yeah. eat at 10 or 11 at night, but we would definitely have a good meal. <laughs> you have to put lemon and red wine vinegar also. And here's something that's often on the menu at the Leachman House, cabbage salad with a family secret dressing. Well, I don't even know what the ingredients are. I just put stuff in. Sometimes I hit it and sometimes I miss it. But the idea really is the taste of cold cabbage and then these ingredients that's what changes and you just have to hit it lucky hopefully we'll be lucky her dressing is an ad lib concoction of garlic vinegar mustard and some really pricey cheese but it all works mm, oh my goodness right that's so much more than what i thought it was going to be and just the thing for someone who's been a vegetarian for most of her adult life do you miss bacon I don't miss meat at all. I couldn't eat meat now if you, if you gave me a million dollars. I couldn't put it in my mouth. Just over the years, I haven't done it, and now I can't. It's odd. Very odd. It's very odd. <laughs> Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? Cloris Leachman no. may not be famous for her cabbage salad, but she is famous for this, one of the best-known running gags in movie history. I am Frau Blucher. Leachman lives near a horse farm in the hills above L.A., and it seems like the neighbors were in on the joke. I'm sorry for laughing. Come on, it's a horse neighing. <laughs> what was the meaning of the horse in Young Frankenstein? I asked Mel a few years ago. And he said, um, Blucher means glue. Director Mel Brooks may have been kidding about the words, but even now it's still just as funny. Inga, may I present Frau Blucher? What's 34 times 12? 408. At 89, she's still a fixture on the big screen. My dog. With more movies due out next year. But no matter what the part, Cloris Leachman knows just how to serve it up. Next few months, I'll be 90. How does that feel? It's hilarious. I can't even count that high. <laughs> <laughs> Is it still fun? Oh, more than anything. Next. The banana is a pretty appealing fruit. Moraka on the bananas and touring appeal. Hi there. I'm eating a banana. That in and of itself may strike you as totally uninteresting. But if you peel back the layers on this, America's most popular fruit, it's actually pretty revealing. Most of the bananas we eat are grown down there, near the equator. Getting them from there to your breakfast table isn't so simple. The unripe fruit is harvested, packed in boxes, and shipped to ports in the U.S. Are you bananas about bananas? I am bananas about bananas. Our family's been doing it for about 75 years, so I grew up being bananas about bananas. Stephen Georgialis is a second-generation owner of Banana Distributors of New York in the Bronx. And you run this joint now? Yes, I do. Which makes you the... Big banana. Oh, I thought it was more top banana. 
I can't say that because that's my competitor across the street. Oh, they're called Top <laughs> When the bananas arrive stateside, they look like this. Wow, this banana is hard. Yeah, well, it, it is un, uh, unprocessed. This is the way it would look like when it's picked off the plant. Before the bananas make their way to the grocery store, they spend time in what's called a ripening room, a five to seven day stay at a carefully calibrated temperature with ethylene gas added to expedite the ripening. Are you a master ripener? I would say so. <laughs> Tony Commando has been in charge of banana ripening here for 14 years. Very, very delicate fruit. Too cold, they get black. Too hot, they get black. Bananas have been around for thousands of years, but they were late arrivals in the United States. William Goldfield is with the Dole Food Company. They were officially introduced in 1876 at the uh, Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. That time, I think they were selling about uh, 10 cents a piece, came wrapped in foil, kind of a novelty. Soon, the banana had everyone excited. By about 1920, the banana is the number one fruit sold in the United States for half the price of apples. Um, and to this day, that remains the, the, the case. The banana is the cheapest fruit in the supermarket, even though it's grown from so far away. Dan Capel wrote a whole book about bananas. He says to keep bananas' costs down, companies like United Fruit, now Chiquita, and Standard Fruit, now Dole, made favorable deals to get cheap or even free land and labor. And so this began what are now known as the banana republics. These countries throughout uh, South and Central America where bananas were grown and the banana industry really ran these countries. In Victorian times, the suggestive shape of the fruit was a problem, so marketers printed postcards to show that it wasn't unladylike to eat a banana. By the 1940s, those concerns were a distant memory. Americans went head over heels for a lady who wore bananas on her head. Brazilian bombshell, Carmen Miranda. Hi, I do that once for Johnny Smith, and he is very happy with the lady and the tutti frutti hat. Even today, folks can't help singing about bananas. Now, there are about a thousand different kinds of bananas in the world, and half of those are edible. But more than 99% of bananas sold in the U.S. are just one kind, the Cavendish. And each Cavendish is exactly like every other. We don't use the term clone, but they're a monoculture, so they are brought from a slice of a previous plant. So they do have the same DNA structure. The Cavendish is, is sadly the, the worst banana anyone could ever eat. It has very little flavor compared to other bananas. And the Cavendish could very well be doomed. A blight that's already attacked it in Australia and parts of Africa is spreading. So yes, we'll have no bananas if the Cavendish is wiped out globally. And that's a shame, because the banana is a pretty appealing fruit. But the peel of the banana? Well, that's another story. As early as 1879, Harper's Weekly warned readers about the danger of tossing their banana skins on the ground, because someone might slip. No joke. But then it became a joke. A big one. Even the great Charlie Chaplin couldn't resist. Wait for it. Wait for it. Comics have been getting peals of laughter ever since. And I promise you, that's my last pun. Coming up. Oh my God, that's really good, man. Is there any accounting for taste? Why do we like the foods we like? Rita Braver has conducted an informal survey. I really like peaches. Mushrooms. I like a lot of different fruits. I don't like any kind of potatoes. I don't like spinach. That stuff's gross. Do you know, like, those long green things and they look like they're sticks with Asparagus? Yeah, I why do we like what we like? Everything is an interaction of genes and environment. With a doctorate in biological psychology, 
Marsha Pell Shaw works as a food preference expert at Monell Chemical Senses Center, a Philadelphia nonprofit which studies taste and smell. Her job, trying to answer the age-old question of why we do or don't desire certain dishes. To show how genes can influence taste, she had me sample this clear liquid. This is a chemical that some people find to be bitter and others can barely taste at all. What foods would this correlate to? Broccoli, cabbage. All right, here I go. Turns out that because of our genes, about 75% of Americans have this reaction. It's very bitter to me. And our genes help govern another way in which we respond to food, through our noses. We have hundreds of different smell receptor genes. Who, who wants to try it now? In fact, it's actually our sense of smell that helps us determine many flavors, as Pellshot demonstrated with a group of third graders at Philadelphia's Frankfurt Friends School. Everyone got licorice and banana jelly beans and a nose clip. The children had to close their eyes and pick a jelly bean. Banana. Okay, now take the clips off. Ew, <laughs> Those who study food preference say that more than anything, even genetics, our favorite foods are determined by what we've been exposed to and our memories. Ribs and broccoli. Because the way my dad makes the ribs, it just takes super, super good. And when my mom makes broccoli, it tastes so good. I'm on the other hand, lack of familiarity with food can breed contempt. Have you ever tried liver? No. Do you want to try liver? Is it liver? It's liver. Okay, no, I don't want to try liver. <laughs> but liver, even raw liver, is on the menu at Takashi, a Japanese-Korean fusion restaurant in Lower Manhattan, where the focus is on beef delicacies like tongue, beef tendon stew, and cow testicles. Believe it or not, folks line up to get in. Marsha Pelshaw describes those who go for the exotic as adventure eaters, people who may have overcome both their genetic predispositions and the fact that they've never been exposed to a food. Oh my God, man, that's really good, man. It's certainly normal for kids to be a little hesitant to try new things. Adults realize that's not going to kill them. So that's how your faithful correspondent found herself tasting one of Chef Takashi's specialties, one he grew up eating in his hometown, Osaka, Japan. This is large intestine. Large intestine. <laughs> and you like this. This is my favorite cut. After a few minutes of grilling... It's almost like crispy bacon. It's very chewy. Mm -hmm. Supposed to be, yes. But I think the secret is the sauce. <laughs> In the end, we do have the ability to change what we like to eat. As with so much in life, it's a question of mind over matter. Next, last call. It's last call at many a tavern these days. Dean Reynolds in Chicago takes us to a few holdouts. Deep within the dark recesses of his favorite dive, you can find John Healy after work at his customary table around 7 o'clock in the morning. And you're a regular here at Rossi's? Yeah, almost every day. Almost every day? Yeah. This is Rossi's on State Street in Chicago. What's up? An establishment where patrons prefer to face the day 
with a shot and a beer more than a grande soy latte. It is one of the few taverns in town that opens its doors for Sunrise customers like lawyer John Luther. It's an old-time bar. You know, it's a fabric of the neighborhood. Rossi's is a classic neighborhood bar. With its heavy steel door and slit windows, it doesn't look all that inviting from the outside, and that's fine with proprietor Dennis McCarthy. Would you call this a dive? I would now, yes. <laughs> McCarthy has owned the joint for 25 years, but the bar has been here for decades more. I had a young kid, you know, he's about 25 years old in here. He says he's looking around and he goes, uh, gee, this is kind of a neat place. Uh, how did you uh, think up the theme? <laughs> and I looked at him and, and I go, think up the theme? I said, how, I said, how about 25 years of neglect? There was a time when Chicago had about 10,000 taverns, seemingly one every block, and many open virtually round the clock. But their numbers are declining here and elsewhere across the country. Over the past decade, about one in six neighborhood bars has closed about 609 every month, compared to 334 new bars opening. We're losing something for sure, uh, and something that I think it's important to preserve. Sean Parnell is the author of a book on Chicago's bars. A place like this could be gone tomorrow, whether it's bought out or the owner retires or passes. So I think it's bars are an important part of our culture. Well, people don't drink as much as they did half a century ago. Modern politicians are not always friendly to neighborhood dives. Chains backed by corporations and festooned with fake authenticity are proliferating. And with an eye on tax revenues, cities are encouraging more restaurant and bar combinations over old time bars bars like Simon's Tavern. Scott Martin has owned it since 1994, but Simon's has been here for 81 years. There's a 30-foot long piece of mahogany here and a 25-foot piece and a 5-foot piece. There's 60-foot of mahogany bar here, built in 1933. Same walk-in cooler downstairs, an 81-year-old walk-in cooler. Sounds yeah. like there's a lot of affection that goes with it, too. Oh, I love this place. So you guys live in the neighborhood, too, then, or...? Simon's Tavern is definitely a place where everyone knows your name and more. I've seen people who have celebrated great things in life, love, friendships, that have happened right here at the bar. Some people who have been down or unhappy, and you've been able to help pick people back up. So it's an important place, I think. And at Simon's or Rossi's, you can have cocktails and conversation. But don't get carried away. So if I come in here and I sit down and I say, may I see a menu, please? <laughs> you might get laughed at. Uh, we'll give you a Slim Jim or something like that. Uh, <laughs> what is not to like here? Absolutely. <laughs> Executive chef Gerard Tice at Boston's Omni Parker House Hotel makes life in the kitchen look easy as pie, specifically Boston cream pie. Essentially, we're talking butter, chocolate, cream, sugar. What could possibly go wrong with that? Nothing. <laughs> it's a wonderful dessert. Wonderful, yes. Isn't it right? And completely misnamed. It isn't a pie at all. No, it's a cake. So where did that come from? Because it was originally baked in pie shells. Two pie shells, actually, for two yellow sponge cakes. Held together with thick pastry cream, covered in chocolate, and coated with almonds. We actually became the state dessert in 1996. Yeah, we are, folks. Oh, congratulations. Oh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> you heard right. Boston cream pie is the official state dessert of Massachusetts. Boston seems to have an ability to claim things that people like. Boston baked beans, Boston terriers, Boston cream pie. What is it about this particular dessert that you think appeals to people around here? It's simple flavors that just 
bring you back to your childhood, really. It's been made more or less the same way since it was invented well over a century ago at this very hotel, whose kitchen, the chef notes, has had some famous and unlikely employees. Malcolm X was a busboy here. This um, is hard to believe. Ho Chi Minh worked in the bake shop. So Ho Chi Minh conceivably could have baked yes. a Boston cream pie, yeah, and Malcolm X presumably could have cleaned up. Yes. I happen to have a plate. <laughs> and I happen to have your Boston cream pie. Okay. The proof is in the pudding. That's good. <laughs> or in this case, the pie. Mm. I have to keep eating it just to make sure it's still good. Of course. <laughs> yeah. I'd say about 80% of the people that order dessert order Boston cream pie. Little cash cow. <laughs> As the chef and the entire state of Massachusetts will tell you, it's worth every calorie-laden penny. What comes to mind immediately when I say Boston cream pie? Creamy, silky, smooth, chocolatey, heaven. <laughs> Not to overstate it. No. <laughs> Heaven. Heaven. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.